And uh, this morning we're going to look at what it means to be devoted, what we're to be devoted to. I don't know if you guys recognize this, but we as human beings were made for community. We were made to be together with other people and not just to be isolated and do our own thing. In the very beginning, when it was just Adam, after six days of God saying it was good, 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 and all that he made, he saw a solitary, lonesome man and said, yikes. No, he didn't say yikes. But he said, it is not good that man should be alone. And so he made, of course, he made Eve for Adam. But from that time, ever since then, people have been gathering in groups. They've been gathering in communities. They've been forming communities. The first, obviously, is the family. But there's also villages and cities and religious organizations and clubs and sports teams and all sorts of groups that people gather together in. People have been organizing communities since the beginning of time. There's something in us that longs for this, and it's because the triune God made us. Think about this. God, for all eternity, has dwelt in community, right? God the, God the Father, Son, and Spirit has dwelt in community, and he's made us in his image, and so we were made for this. We understand that there's something not altogether right about the dude that wants to be out in the wilderness by himself and be left alone for his entire life, right? We call that guy a hermit or a recluse or a loner, and usually we don't use those terms positively. Uh, Proverbs 18.1 says, tells us about this. It says, uh, the man who isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. The one who isolates himself not only seeks his own desire, but he also loses touch with reality. He breaks out against all sound judgment. We were made for community. Now, interestingly, in our time, people have never been more connected with other people, never been more accessible to other people, and yet at the same time, many people who are so connected via technology and their smartphones are starved for real fellowship, for a real community. And often, they're starved for it, and they don't even know it because they're so connected. They have hundreds of friends, right? Facebook friends and whatever other platforms. The busyness of life, our own interests and activities that we pursue, and the illusion that we truly are connected via our phones and other technology, and not only that, but also our love for personal peace and privacy, all of these things are fracturing people, fracturing humanity. But my concern is primarily for the church. It's also doing something to us. So what does God call us to do that goes in the other direction? Here's what he calls us to. Fellowship. He calls us to fellowship. Acts chapter 2 says that, that the first Christians after Pentecost, right, they, the Holy Spirit was poured out and 3,000 people were saved plus the 120 that were in the upper room and they, they among other things, they devoted themselves to 
fellowship. The word fellowship, it's the Greek word koinonia. Perhaps you've heard that before. It means to share and participate in a common life together. We use the word fellowship, and I don't think it's wrong to use it this way, but we use the word fellowship just kind of casual hanging out. Let's, go, let's watch a football game and chat about the weather, and we call that fellowship. The New Testament church, it was much more than that. They shared and participated in a common life together. Devotion to fellowship means, essentially, devoted to one another. Okay? Devotion to fellowship means devoted to one another, to each other. And the early church did this. They really did it. They did it really well. There's something we can learn from them. They met together often. They ate together. They prayed together. They no doubt played together as well. They worked together. They helped each other. When someone was in need, others would rally around them and help them to the point that we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4, people would sell their property. People would literally sell their properties and bring the proceeds to help a brother or sister in need. That was the depth of the fellowship that they celebrated together. Now, some have looked at that and said, oh, Christians, early Christians were a bunch of commies, right? They were a bunch of communists or socialists. They, they, they believed in the redistribution of wealth. Well, that's not how it worked. There was no government requiring it, right? Church government or civil government saying you must sell your things and give to the poor or anything like that. It was something they did out of the abundance of their hearts, out of love for one another, out of a deep sense of commonality and community fellowship. And the early church, because they did this, they were often seen as weird. They were seen even as subversive because of their fellowship. They would gather and feast together and celebrate the Lord's Supper, and they called these gatherings love feasts. Now imagine if you put an advertisement on Facebook or in the newspaper or somewhere and said, yeah, we're having a love feast this Wednesday night. That might sound really strange. And you'd want to, in our day, you'd kind of want to explain what you mean by that, right? But they, they got together, they ate together, they celebrated the Lord's Supper, and they called it a love feast. They would greet each other with something called a holy kiss. They called each other brothers and sisters. Even husbands and wives would do that. They would visit each other when one was in prison. Because back then, if you were in prison, you didn't get three square meals a day. Not from the prison. You'd have people come and visit you and bring you things that you needed. And when they did that, it put a bullseye on their back. Like, oh, the, this guy or this family, they're with that guy who's in here because he's a Christian. and put a bullseye on their back and they did it because of fellowship. They were committed to fellowship. They were devoted to each other. And they were devoted to each other because of their love for the Lord. No doubt. They were devoted to one another because they loved Christ. But they also were devoted to each other because it was their duty. It was not one or the other. It was not either or. It was both and. They were devoted to each other because they loved the Lord and because it was their duty out of love for the Lord to be devoted to one another. 
I think sometimes we, we assume it's one or the other. Like if we're moved by love, we'll, we'll do certain things. We'll love one another, be devoted to one another. Or if there's a black and white command, we must do this. Well, then I guess I better. It's both and. We are, we're to be devoted just like they were because we love the Lord and because it is our duty. Think about this. These early Christians had been brought into a brand new reality. David shared our memory verse from last week. You are a chosen generation, or I'm sorry, chosen race. That's King James. I've learned it a long time ago. Actually, we sang a song a long time ago, and it was that verse in the King James. So I always remember that, right, Jody? Um, You're a chosen race. Who's that talking to? Not us as individuals, but us as a people. You're a royal priesthood. Who's that? Us as a people. You're a holy nation. That's us, not just me as an isolated person. A people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then the next verse says this. I love verse 10. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's chosen people. Once you weren't even a people, and now you are the people of God. We've been brought into this reality, these early Christians were, and they realized that changes things. It changes allegiances, right? The the people you're devoted to now. doesn't mean you're not devoted to family who maybe are not Christians. It just means you most certainly are devoted, to be devoted, to these people that are with you as God's chosen people. Well, as we come to Romans 15, the broader context of our passage addresses this. Romans 15, 1-7 is a continuation, obviously, of chapter 14, um, where... Um, excuse me, what Paul addresses in Romans 14 and how Christians ought to relate to one another. We see this in verse 1, when Paul exhorts stronger Christians to bear with weaker brothers and sisters. And what he means by that is stronger in faith, those who have a stronger in, in conscience, they're to bear with their weaker brothers and sisters who might not have as strong a faith, might be, have a weaker conscience, and as it pertains to things like food, the kinds of foods you would eat, the kind of if you drink wine or not, and those, those sorts of things, celebrating certain days versus not, and things like that. Then in verses 2 to 7 of our passage, um, we see what, what appears to be instruction for all Christians, weak and strong Christians. In other words, for all of us. If you are in Christ, this is for you and I. And what the Lord calls us to from this text is a deeper fellowship, a more demanding fellowship, a more glorious fellowship than perhaps anything you've ever considered. And he does this by giving us a stronger motivation, a more durable motivation than anything you and I could ever muster up with our own strength. You know what it's like to try to motivate yourself to do something and you go strong for a little while and then fall flat. And he calls us to this fellowship for a purpose higher and more noble than anything that the world can offer to us or give to us. Now, I understand this sounds grandiose. It might be like, well, that sounds pretty highfalutin. And in one sense it is. But we have a grand and glorious God. Amen? 
who has called us to a grand and glorious purpose and who has redeemed us with the imperishable imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. Now I realize that unless the Holy Spirit does a work here today, and I I mean this, I, I, I really mean this, unless the Holy Spirit does a work here today, what's said will benefit us very little. And I recognize that. But here's my confidence and conviction, and I want it to be yours too. Okay? I want this to be your conviction. That it's not just you and I here today. That the living God is here among us. The Holy Spirit is here. He indwells every redeemed saint. He's here. Not only that, the head of the church, Jesus Christ, is here. He's here by his Holy Spirit. And that changes everything. Listen, if this is just a club with a bunch of people hanging around and one guy up front giving a talk, maybe it'll inspire us for a little bit, maybe not. Take it or leave it. But if God is here, if Christ is here, and if his word is opened, when his word's opened, he speaks. And we should have ears to hear. We should want to have ears to hear. That's my conviction is that he's here. The Lord Jesus Christ, when the book is opened, is speaking to us. And his sheep hear his voice. So, from this passage, I think Christ shouts to us three things. One, the call to fellowship. The call to real fellowship. Two, the motivation to give ourselves to the fellowship. And three, this high and noble and wonderful purpose for our fellowship. So let's take these one at a time. First, the fellowship. The fellowship. We are called to fellowship. We are called to this common shared participation in life together. This text is so rich, I think, in how we are to interact with one another. The church is not an organization primarily about expressive individualism, which is kind of the, the, the meal of the, of the day in our society. Everything's about me expressing myself. Everyone gets to express his or her inner rock star. That's not what the church is about, and I think we understand that. But the church is also not primarily an avenue for business ventures and meeting people of like-mindedness to you know, get involved in business together and um, finding a future husband or wife or getting connected with nice people who are interested in similar hobbies. Now, all of those things happen, and praise God for it. And they should happen in the church. But that's not the primary reason we gather. So how do we participate in the fellowship. Well, the first thing we see is that the fellowship is primarily about seeking the good of others. It's about seeking the good of those that you're gathered with. It's about seeking the good of one another. Verse 2 says this, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, okay? Let each of us please his neighbor. 
This is what we're to be, to be about. This is, now of course, this is not talking about people pleasing in the negative sense. You guys know what a people pleaser is, right? Sometimes I can be one, right? And that's, Paul's not talking about that. That's negative to, to kind of have a craven desire to have everyone like you so you do whatever you think is going to please them so they like, like you better. That's not what Paul's talking about. In fact, to do that is actually to go in the opposite direction than a servant of Christ would go. You can't be a people pleaser in that negative sense and be a faithful servant of Christ. Here's what Paul said in Galatians 1. He said, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. There's a certain kind of people pleasing we want to steer clear of completely. The point in our passage of pleasing one another is working not for your own advantage, but for the advantage of your brothers and sisters. It is to put others first. Imagine the spirit of fellowship when everyone, and we've probably tasted this, imagine the spirit of fellowship where everyone is genuinely and eagerly putting others first, working for the good of others. Listen, they don't, we don't just show up just to take up space, just to do our religious duty to God. Okay, well, I know we should go to church, so let's go to church for an hour and 15 minutes and then get out of here as quick as we can. We're not doing that. We're also not gathering to see what others can do for us. We're gathering to benefit others. We gather for the good of one another. The spirit of fellowship when that happens, is so sweet, so precious, so rich. So this kind of pleasing people is putting others before self. This is what Paul has in mind when he says, please your neighbor, work for his or her good. And that's drawn out in verse 2. Now, of course, limits are put on what it means to please others as well. I think we see this. Let each of us please his neighbor What's the next phrase? For his good to build him up. That's the point. That means putting others first means working for their ultimate good, working for them to be built up in Christ, encouraged, strengthened in Jesus Christ. Of course, truth can't die in the name of putting others first. Biblical morality can't be executed for the sake of pleasing others. Of course. In fact, an understanding of good, which we get from God, God knows what's good for us. We should seek to do good to others according to what God says is good. We should seek to build others up according to how God says people are to be built up. That's to help us understand and give shape to how we're to seek to do good to others. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 33. Now, he's talking about how he sought to do this for unbelievers, but there's so much here for us in the context of the church as well. He said, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. 
That's the aim, right? I, don't, I, I try to please everyone in everything I do. Not seeking my own advantage, that's pleasing others, right? Not pleasing myself, but pleasing others that they may be saved. Back to Romans 15, our, our text for this morning. Who is supposed to do this? Who is let each of us? Who is the each of us? Well, that's you. And it's the person sitting next to you and in front of you and behind you and me. It's all of us. Let each of us do this. Each of us is to approach fellowship in this way. And brothers and sisters, we're given a really good reason for doing this. Verse 3 says this, For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For Christ didn't please himself. The eternal son of God who had every right. I mean, in one sense, you and I have no right to please ourselves because we're sinners too. I mean, what do we, right? why are we better than others? But Jesus really is better than others. <laughs> if there's anyone who had the right to please himself, it was Christ. But Jesus Christ didn't even please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus didn't work for his own advantage, but he worked for ours. Now this quote where it says, for as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me, is from Psalm 69, verse 9. And it's Christ talking to the Father. The reproaches, the insults, the slander of those who reproached God fell on Christ. This is most likely, most likely referring to the insults and reproaches, to the slander that Christ endured from the Jewish leaders, from the Roman soldiers, from the crowds that derided him on the day of his crucifixion. Well, maybe even leading up to that. Now, I don't know about you, but it's easy to think about the events that led to the betrayal and crucifixion of Jesus and think to ourselves, I never would have done that, what those crowds did. I never would have done that. I can't believe they did that to him. You ever think that before? I think I have. I think when I'm more sober, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe I would have gone along with the crowds. There's an old song called How Deep the Father's Love. Last week when we did the Lord's Supper, I said to Alyssa, I really wanted to sing that at the end. But I didn't get up and try to lead that with my... Anyways, there's an old song, How Deep the Father's Love. There's a, there's a verse in it that I think gives us a more humble sense of ourselves and our own culpability in the crucifixion of Christ, even 2,000 years later. And perhaps what we would have done had we been there. Here's how it goes. Behold the man upon the cross. My sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. And I know that it is finished. 
The point of this quotation in Psalm 69.9 that Paul uses here in Romans 15 is clear. Jesus gave himself in service of others at great cost to himself. An early church father named John Chrysostom said this about this verse, about this usage of Psalm 69.9. He said, Jesus had the power to have, excuse me, Jesus had the power not to have been reproached. Power not to have suffered what he did suffer had he been looking out for himself. Remember when Jesus said to Peter, put your sword back in your sheath. Don't you know I could call out to my father and 12 legions of angels would come and deliver me at once. But Jesus wasn't looking out for himself. He was looking out for us. And this is meant to be a motivating reason for us to do the same. Let us please our neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ didn't please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As we consider Christ, how Christ, the eternal Son of God, chose to subject himself to reproach, to suffering, ultimately to death on our behalf, this ought to motivate us in how we relate with one another and how we give of ourselves, of how we look to do good to one another and not just please ourselves. This is exactly what Paul said very explicitly in, in what, it, what was really an early church hymn. It's called, it was called the Carmen, or still is called the Carmen Christi in Philippians 2. Hymn of Christ says this, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's how he looked out for our interests. And we, following his example, imitating our Lord, are to look out for the interests of others, to give ourselves for the good of our brothers and sisters when we see Christ and how he behaved on our behalf, it gives us the endurance and the encouragement we need to follow his example. And we must follow his example. That's what we're called to. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. True biblical fellowship puts others first working for their good to build them up. But there's actually more here. Fellowship is more than just seeking the good of others because you could imagine a way in which you can do that at a distance. I'll do good to others, but I'm just going to keep them at a distance from me. And so Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 7 
says, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Welcome one another. Some translations say accept. For some reason, I don't like that translation. Maybe it's just because of the way we use the word accept in our society today. Accept, just accept me for who I am. You've got to accept everybody and everything they believe and everything they do and all of that. Well, but it's, it's a fine word. Accept, welcome. Of course, we already know that there are limits. We're not to accept every or welcome every truth claim as equal. We're not to accept or welcome every way of living as valid. And here in particular, Paul puts limits on who we are to welcome. He says, welcome one another. Now those two words, one another, For Paul, this is the language of family. This is family talk. Welcome one another. This is how we talk about our family, the Christian family. In Paul's letters, he uses the two words one another dozens of times. And other writers do too, Peter and John and James and so forth. But Paul especially loves this this construction of how Christians, how the, the family of God is to, are to relate, is to relate to one another. How brothers and sisters in Christ are to relate to one another. So we have commands in the New Testament, Paul's writings, such as forgive one another. Or love one another earnestly from a pure, that's actually Peter, earnestly from a pure heart. Or bear with one another. Or bear one another's burdens, or show hospitality to one another. This is how we're to relate in the family of God with each other. Now, here I think the word welcome gets underneath to the base level way in which Christians are to be devoted to each other. To welcome means, we already talked about this, it means to accept or I like the word receive or the picture of taking others to yourself, taking to oneself, bringing people close to you. And not just close, you can give them a handshake or a hug or bro hug or whatever, like anything like that, but especially bringing someone or people close to your heart. And in order to do that, you and I need to be large-hearted toward other people. We need to have a large heart toward people. Not be closed-hearted toward others. And especially our brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, there are differences in a church. There's all kinds of differences in personalities and age differences and background differences. How people were raised and Sometimes terribly how people were raised and the heartache people have experienced. There are differences in ethnicities. And interestingly, as you go through Romans 15 later, that's what Paul addresses, how Jew and Gentile, God has brought them together. There are differences in how some of us understand certain truths. Of course, there are central things that we must hold together, 
but there are secondary and even tertiary things that we don't necessarily agree on. We should work toward agreement. We should work toward agreement, but we don't agree on everything. All of these things, we recognize these differences, but we should have a large-hearted warmth toward one another in and through all of these things. Even as we work toward unity on things that, that we differ on, we should do it with a welcoming heart, a deep welcoming heart toward one another, not keeping people at arm's length but rather bringing them near. Now, I don't know about you, but I want to grow in this. I want to do better. I mean, I just recognize I I can do better. I need to. I want to. I want us to. Church should never feel like, this church or any church, should never feel like junior high where you got all these different groups of people. <laughs> you got the jocks over here, and you got the cool kids over here, and you got this, right, the, the band kids and the straight A's. You got all these different groups of people, kind of these different cliques. should never feel that way. Now, some of that, obviously, I'm not saying that even when people claim that's the way it is, necessarily is, but we should work to have it not be like that. We need the Lord's help. And thankfully, we're shown the way forward. We're shown the way forward here. How do we welcome one another? Do you guys see in the passage? Verse 7, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. How do we welcome one another? As Christ has welcomed us. As Christ has welcomed you. When our hearts are cold or aloof or kind of shriveled up to others, the problem usually isn't others. When we just want to isolate and not be around others and just like, just want to be alone, just like, for a long time, I just want to be alone. Now, being alone is good. I like being alone sometimes. But if that's a habit, if that's kind of a disposition of your heart, it's probably not because of others. You ever heard that saying, we have found the, pro- we have found the enemy and the enemy is us? Often the problem is us. The problem is in us. And if we're Christians, the, the pro- we can pinpoint the problem, at least to some degree, because I think this passage tells us we can pinpoint the problem. The problem is that we have forgotten how Christ treats us and how he's brought us near to him. To the degree that you and I know the ex- and experience the rich welcome of Christ, unto himself, we will be welcoming people. To them. Of course, we have different, again, we have different personalities. Not everyone's warm and bubbly like Ashley Luce. I mean, I get it. Like, not everyone's like that. But we will grow in our ability to bring people near 
and close to our hearts and love them and welcome them in. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've heard these words before, I have no doubt. Many of you, most of you, maybe everyone here. Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus said, come to me. Are you heavy laden? Do you labor? Are you weighed down with sin? Are you weighed down with anxiety and burdens? Jesus said, come to me. And let me ask you, have you come to him? And I'm I'm not asking if you vaguely believe in Jesus. I'm saying, have you come to Christ? Because if you haven't, if you don't know if you have, oh my goodness, stop the brakes. That's what you need to do today, is to come to Jesus for salvation and for rest for your souls. But my guess is most of you, most of you would say, yes, I've come to him. Praise God. How did he receive you when you came? Did he receive you half-heartedly? Did he receive you reluctantly? Did he hold his nose when you came near? Yeah. Is that how he did it? No. Really, the picture we have of how Christ receives us is the picture of the prodigal son. How did the father receive his shameful, reckless, sinful, and smelly son. He ran to him. He put his arms around him. He didn't hold his nose. He put his arms around him. He kissed his neck. Imagine the smell. He'd been working with pigs. He put a new robe on him. He put, a new, he put sandals on his feet. He put a ring on his finger And he called a servant and said, kill the fatted calf. We are going to feast tonight. My son has come home. That's how when we come to Christ, that is how we are received. Maybe the problem is, now I grew up in the church. Sometimes the problem is it's like, yeah, but I I don't know. I don't think I smelled like the prodigal son. (laughs) I think I'm probably better than him. Maybe I deserved it, kind of, because I'm a pretty good person. But it's a picture of all of us with our stinking sin coming to Christ and him embracing us and bringing us close. May the Lord help us to experience this and to receive other brothers and sisters the same. I mean brothers and sisters. I'm not just talking about everyone who off the street who says, you need to accept me. You need to just accept me for who I am, no matter what. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about our brothers and sisters in Christ. So fellowship is seeking the good of one another at the expense of what we want. 
seeking to please others. It is welcoming one another, bringing others close, because that's how Christ has welcomed us. Well, to help us pursue this, I think we need to know what the purpose is. What is the point? What's the aim of all of this? And we see it in the last phrase of our passage this morning. What's the ultimate aim? The last phrase of our text, everything drives to this. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The highest aim is not even the good of people. Your good and my good. Now that is an aim, no doubt. But it's not the primary aim, it's secondary. It's not the ultimate aim. The ultimate aim is the display of God's glory. The ultimate aim is that we as a people would accurately display and brightly display the glory of God. And actually, I think this aim is of God's glory and our fellowship is enhanced in verse 6. Look at verse 6. It says that together with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The purpose of our deepened fellowship is that together, in one accord, and with one voice, we may glorify our God and Father. Our fellowship can, can shine a spotlight on the glory of God. It can magnify the glory of God. Unfortunately, our fellowship can also shine a negative light on maybe what God's like. It doesn't really tell us what, tell what God's like, but it can give a wrong impression about what God's like. Our common togetherness is to be such that with one voice we glorify God. Well, this, this, this phrase, with one voice. I mean, Paul, like, he, he doubles up on this idea of togetherness, right? In one accord, with one voice, or together with one voice. Some translations, instead of together, it says in one accord. In one accord, with one voice, we may glorify God. Ultimately, I think it means that we have one message. That in everything we do, not just talking about message that's preached, in everything we do, in our fellowship together, we are communicating something. We want to communicate something. When there's such a togetherness in the Spirit, in Christ, committed to God's Word, devoted to each other, we speak and communicate as one person. In one accord, together. Everything we do as a body speaks. And we should want to speak with one voice. We, what's, what do we want to communicate? We want to draw attention to God and the greatness of God. We want to draw attention to Christ and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We want to draw attention to the loveliness of our Savior and what he's done for us. We want to draw attention to the glory of God, that he is high and lifted up, that he is king over all the earth. We want to draw attention to these things. And when we do, as one person, we have one voice and do so. 
We actually see a picture of this in Acts chapter 4. I think it's very fascinating. Um, Peter and John had been arrested for preaching about Jesus. They were brought before the religious leaders of the Jewish people, and they were warned, stop preaching Christ. And then they were let go, and they were threatened. And here's what it says. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And then listen to this. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices in one accord to God and said. I remember maybe, I don't know, some years back, I read that and it's like, well, it, 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 we have the prayer written there in Acts chapter 4. And I don't think they all just supernaturally had a download of what they were to pray together all in unison. But they were so together. They, they were so united in fellowship that they spoke as one. They lifted their voices together with one voice they prayed. You know what it's like to be in a prayer meeting? When there's such precious unity that like everything, your brother or sister's praying, you're like, amen, 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 amen. That's what it's like. Instead of like, ooh, I'm not sure. <laughs> or maybe Josh needs to like not pray so long or what? I mean, no, but like just amen to everything. That's praying in one accord. That's having one voice. We know this is what glorifies Jesus. Jesus prayed in John 17, the glory, Father, that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me. That's speaking and communicating with one voice for the glory of God. Highlighting, displaying the glory of God. Jesus is praying for something deep. Not fellowship based on some superficial standards. Like let's just, let's, you know, let's just brush aside things that we should work on. No. Something deep. Also, not a, not a coerced togetherness, but a deep togetherness, a real fellowship of zealously seeking the good of each other. Large-hearted, toward one another, receiving one another, bringing people close, following the example of Christ, motivated by his heart. And interestingly, this is, I think we see a prayer in these verses. Paul prays for that. Look at verses 5 and 6 and how they connect. Paul says, May the God of endurance... And encouragement grants you to live in such harmony. The word harmony means to be of the same mind. May he grant you to live in such harmony that with one, me, with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You ever just wanted to encourage somebody and you just say, well, May God give you strength. What is that? Well, it's kind of a hope, kind of a prayer, isn't it? I think that's what Paul's doing here. 
May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus. That together, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is how we should pray. We should work toward this. And may God do it. Amen? May he do it. And notice he's the God of endurance and encouragement. What's that all about? We saw that earlier too. I'm not going to get into it, but he's the God of endurance and encouragement. Listen, to welcome others to ourselves, to work to please others rather than us, we need encouragement to do it. And brothers and sisters, we need endurance to do that. It is so much easier. Just say, nah, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to bow out. It's easier just to kind of stay aloof. It might be easier, but there's no joy there. There's no life there. We need endurance. We need encouragement to pursue like-mindedness, harmony, fellowship, and to live in harmony with one another. I mean, honestly, I believe that as we pray for this, as we seek the reality of this, not just a superficial kind of surface level unity like, hey, there's no massive problems we know about. Let's just kind of keep it that way. Not that, but something deep, something profound. As we do this, we will see the Lord work in glorious ways for the display of his glory. And we will be better equipped to with one voice, glorify him and display his glory, not just for our benefit, but also for the benefit of those outside the church. Well, I want to do something a little different uh, to end today. I mean, uh, I want to ask you to grab your bulletin, or if you have your Bible open, you can do that too. Actually, bulletin, because I want us to say the same words. (laughs) Uh, Different translations might... uh, not work as well. I want us to look at verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6, I want, us to, I want us to pray this together. I want us to say this together. But I want you to do something. In verse 5, I want you to put us in the place of you. So we would say, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony. And in verse 6, I want you to put we in the, in the place of you. That together, we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right? Let's say it together, okay? May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony and in accord with Jesus Christ that together we may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Did I mess you up there? I might have. Let's say it one more time. I'll do better. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant us to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together we may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word.